0: This is Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NEETEC, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Welcome to Transmission Interrupted from NEETEC.
1: Hello, and welcome to Transmission Interrupted, brought to you by NEETEC. For those of you not yet familiar with NEETEC, Our mission is to increase the capability of the United States public health and healthcare system to safely and effectively manage individuals with suspected and confirmed special pathogens in cooperation with the CDC and funded by ASFER, the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response. My name is Lauren Sauer. I'm an associate professor at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, College of Public Health, and I'm the director of the NETEC Special Pathogens Research Network. And I am absolutely thrilled to introduce our guest for today's podcast, Dr. Samir Khadri.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Dr. Kadri is an ICU physician and a tenure track investigator at the NIH Clinical Center, where he also serves as the head of the clinical epidemiology section. Dr. Kadri is here to talk to us today about his new article in the Annals of Internal Medicine, the association between the caseload surge and COVID-19 survival in 558 hospitals from March to August 2020. Dr. Kadri, thanks again so much for joining us.
0: I really appreciate the invitation. Uh, Thank you, everyone at NEETEC and colleagues at Asper. I want to take this opportunity to just share with you the findings from a study that we did in collaboration with the CDC, Emory and Harvard Universities. What we tried to do was understand what the relationship is between surging hospitals and their impact on mortality risk of COVID-19 patients in those hospitals. The study was published in the Annals of Internal Medicine in July of this year. And for those interested in a deeper dive, you can check out the link that can be found on the NETIC repository. So going straight to the bottom line of our study, out of about 140,000 patients who were admitted with COVID-19 to 558 U.S. hospitals during the first two pandemic waves in the U.S., The risk of dying increased when hospitals were strained by too many COVID-19 patients. In fact, the risk of dying doubled at the worst affected hospitals. One in every four hospitalized COVID-19 patients likely died due to surge conditions.
1: Those are just unbelievable numbers. A quarter of every hospitalized COVID-19 patient dying due to surge conditions. For those of our listeners who aren't familiar with the concept of hospital surge, maybe we can give a quick definition medical surge is basically the ability to provide really adequate medical evaluation and care during the events that exceed normal limits of the medical system in an affected community. Does that sound right? Yes. So beyond this pretty simplistic explanation, medical surge is an extraordinarily complex topic that's difficult to comprehensively describe in one small sentence, but yet it forms the cornerstone of our preparedness and planning efforts. Can you tell us what inspired you to look at medical surge in this study?
0: Absolutely. While working on the front lines at surging hospitals early on in the pandemic, myself and many of my colleagues noticed care quality negatively impacted by sheer overcrowding. This was especially true for patients who were fighting for their lives in the ICU. Why? It's because critically ill COVID-19 patients need a lot of attention. They need a lot of nuanced treatment. As the stretchers kept rolling in, there were times when there were I think just not enough eyes, not enough brains, not enough hands for patients. And I think we're all incredibly proud of our entire healthcare community who came together and truly embraced the challenge as their duty and commitment to society. But unfortunately, there was no playbook on how to handle hospitals during this terrible respiratory viral pandemic surge crisis. It's a magnitude that we had never seen before. While natural disasters and mass casualty events offer some precedent on how hospitals could handle a large bolus of sick patients, like hurricanes for instance, those events thankfully do go away in a finite amount of time. But the pandemic was a totally different beast. It just went on, and it's still going on. Hospital leaders brainstormed, innovated, and rapidly reorganized operations heroically made more room in operating rooms, recovery rooms, sometimes even hallways, cafeterias, parking lots. Out of desperation, staff were redirected to handle patients outside of their comfort zones. Healthcare workers tested the limits of their own physical and emotional capabilities and still are doing the same. Despite our healthcare workers bending over backwards under these extraordinary circumstances, care quality did end up in fact being about the numbers after all. This is really important. This is not for the fault of the healthcare workers. They did the best that they could. But at hospitals that were bursting at the seams, the bandwidth of high precision care that one would expect on a typical day when everything is going hunky-dory in pre-pandemic times was simply impossible to replicate. As we transition from being stunned in spring of 2020, I think you all remember that horrific time, To a phase when we adjusted to unusual circumstances, that's today, and reintroduced suspended operations like elective procedures, volumes gone back up, it has become imperative to investigate what we did right, where we went wrong. In other words, lessons that could help formulate management and organizational strategies for the ongoing pandemic and future potential ones. And that was really, you know, where the inspiration came from.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. And your comment about the healthcare workers, I mean, they just continue to do that incredible work under these extraordinary circumstances that are ongoing. As you said, we're still in this pandemic and surge is something we still continue to see today. The care of these very sick patients is just so complex and there might be different things that impact strain surges and their relationship to outcomes. So Tell us a bit more about how you designed the study, just thinking about how complex medical surge is. How did you go Mm -hmm. about looking to understand that and how you sort of evaluated hospital strain?
0: Sure. The need for the study I think was obvious, but the main challenge was how do we go about studying this very complex question like you mentioned. There weren't many prior examples on how to investigate pandemic strain on hospitals. There simply hadn't been one in a hundred years. In medicine, we rely on clinical trials to tell us about new treatments that are effective where patients are randomly assigned to get either treatment or placebo, for instance. And these type of trials are the gold standard for medical research. But you obviously cannot randomize or assign patients to a compromised care setting. That's just unethical. In these cases, we need to learn by observation. Observational studies become the new gold standard in this setting. What actually happened in the real world during surging versus non-surging times in hospitals? Again, what did we do right? What went wrong? Those are the type of things that we needed to learn by observation. And in order to do this observational study, our group at the NIH Clinical Center collaborated with experts at CDC, Harvard, and Emory University. We took this very large database, the Premier Healthcare Database that's provided by a healthcare company, Premier. And this contains de-identified patient data from billing files from hundreds of U.S. hospitals. To measure the strain of overcrowding at each hospital in each month, we created a new metric called the Surge Index.
1: Okay, now I'm intrigued. You know in healthcare we love an index. So tell me more about the Surge (laughs) Index.
0: Sure. This Surge Index captures the burn or the strain experienced by a hospital caused by too many COVID-19 patients. Now, here's what is unique about it. It accounts for not only the number of COVID-19 patients hospitalized, but also assigns greater importance or weight to cases that need more monitoring, more equipment, more nursing, more respiratory therapist attention, for instance. And so it also takes into consideration how many patients a hospital was typically used to managing before the pandemic these are nuances that are really important and why? Because the resilience of a hospital to pandemic strain does not only depend on numbers, but it also depends on patient complexity and how unusual a certain bolus of burden of patients is for a given hospital. And our hypothesis was that perhaps accounting for these nuances might actually bring out the important differences in surge strain across hospitals. Let's use an example to understand the surge index better. Okay, so there's a little math involved, but I promise to keep it simple. Imagine two hospitals, Hospital A and Hospital B. Let's say both hospitals encountered 20 COVID patients at their ER door in June. However, Hospital A is a very small hospital. And let's imagine Hospital B is a bigger hospital. Remember, B for bigger. Let's say hypothetically that all COVID-19 patients at the smaller hospital A were complex and needed the ventilator. Let's also say none of the 20 patients at this bigger hospital B needed the ventilator or even the ICU. Even though both hospitals saw the same number of patients, the surge index, that is the measure of surge strain, is much greater at the smaller hospital A. In other words, overloading a smaller hospital with more complex and resource requiring cases simply puts that hospital A at much greater disadvantage than the bigger hospital that was accustomed to many patients and encountered milder cases. A little bit complicated and convoluted, but I hope I was able to explain the gist.
1: Absolutely. And I can imagine that this is You know, critical information for our critical access hospitals, our more rural, small hospitals, and even community hospitals in larger healthcare delivery areas. So that's the COVID patients. But we're seeing more and more non-COVID but very ill patients now, like those with heart attacks, sepsis, stroke. They're returning to the hospitals, and we know these patients also need resources. They need staff. They need a bed. They need all of the things that go into medical surge. Are they also impacted? Do your findings apply to them?
0: Lauren, I'm glad you brought this up. The discussion of surge impact would be incomplete without understanding how surges impact not only COVID patients, but also these non-COVID bystanders at these surging hospitals. In fact, a national level study from France published recently in the journal Critical Care Medicine showed that even for patients with problems other than COVID-19, such as the ones you mentioned, sepsis, trauma, stroke, heart attacks, etc., Mortality risk does go up as hospitals get increasingly overcrowded.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. People don't stop getting sick with other things just because there's a pandemic, right? Can you elaborate how and why these patients without COVID-19 are also hurt by overcrowding?
0: Sure. To better understand this, why don't we envision a hypothetical scenario and think about it in two different ways. How it plays out during an average day when everything is going as usual versus during a surge. So I'm going to use myself as an example as a patient. Say I arrive at the emergency room with a sudden massive brain stroke due to a blood clot. The hospital is working at usual capacity and regular operations. I'm rushed for head imaging, which confirms I have a stroke. I receive a clot-busting drug to decrease my risk of long-term disability, but this drug also carries approximately 2% excess risk of life-threatening brain bleed. Hence, I'm monitored closely in an ICU, and I get checked on for complications every hour on the hour by a nurse who has only one other patient to worry about in the ICU. The nurse suddenly notices that my left pupil got bigger than the right. She tells the ICU doctor, the ICU doctor is worried I could be bleeding in my brain. In a matter of minutes, I'm rushed for another emergent brain CAT scan while the on-call neurologist and neurosurgeons are stat-paged. Now, let's imagine the opposite scenario. Let's imagine surge times. And, uh, you know, for all of those who have seen interactive films like Bandersnatch, where viewers get to select among branching narratives, let's click on the mega surge scenario. Is the same level of care precision for my stroke even fathomable when the hospital is bursting at the seams while nurses have stepped up to handle three times their regular patient load? while ICU doctors are juggling managing a busy ICU while also putting fires out all over the hospital, while the stroke specialist has been temporarily reassigned to the ICU doctor as an extra set of hands. Worse, what if every other hospital in the area is full? Let's say, Lauren, that they find a bed for me that's a thousand miles away. That's great. But do they have a transport helicopter? Let's say they find that as well. Do they have a flight nurse? So my point here is that during normal operations, we are already doing a very complex procedure of getting all these forces to align. However, during a surge, it's really difficult to synchronize all of these. And if even one piece is missing or not working well, your outcome is likely not going to be what you expect.
1: Yeah, it's like a domino effect, you know, Mm -hmm. only in reverse. You take away one domino and the whole thing doesn't go the way it needs to anymore. And you know, I think it, it speaks to the value of these really focused nurses and doctors who are doing so much work in this space to make sure that people are getting as close to the highest quality care that they can get without you know some of these really critical resources and all of this going on around them. So there's also been an explosion of research into new therapies and treatment strategies for COVID-19. I run the Special Pathogens Research Network and we've put through several studies across all of our sites And we've seen an unbelievable increase in how quickly we can do a clinical trial for COVID-19. It's pretty amazing. Have the outcomes for these COVID-19 hospitalized patients improved because of these new therapeutic and treatment strategies? How does that impact your findings of the detrimental impact of surges on these patient outcomes and, and how they really do?
0: Although there have been incredible advancements in our understanding of the virus, its pathogenicity, There are still no magic bullets that dramatically reverse critical illness in patients who become very sick with COVID-19. In fact, clinical trials have shown us that corticosteroids save lives in severe COVID-19. However, we found in our study that mortality risk persisted even after it was well established that corticosteroids save lives in COVID-19. And despite the fact that most very sick patients in the second half of the study received corticosteroids after it became known that it's effective, even at the hospitals with the greatest surges. So my point is that people at these surging hospitals were not dying for lack of corticosteroids. So clearly, even though we saw that there was a higher mortality risk at these hospitals, it seemed like it was something else. It's not that they were not getting the drugs they needed. There was more to the story, which further points to a breakdown of operations, essentially. And the message here is that perhaps patients do not get the maximal effect of emerging effective therapies when they are being treated in an environment strained by surges. And this is actually a message for trialists as well. We try to treat randomized controlled trials where we create a very ideal scenario so that we can isolate the impact of the treatment on outcome. If we're doing trials in the real world where surges are happening simultaneously, we really have to take that into account. Or we may discount some of the effect of these therapies.
1: So it sounds like even when you have all of these new tools in your toolkit, the best way to build the house and stay safe is to stay out of the hospital to begin with. So even with these new treatments, the surges do seem to have bad impact on those hospitalized with COVID and those with other problems, whether there's a high amount of COVID in the hospital or just overwhelming volumes at all. These findings are timely and likely to have important implications on our current crisis, but also healthcare more broadly. Could you elaborate on some of those findings?
0: Sure. As you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, patient census and surge duration have both stretched unprecedentedly. Every tipping point has been tipped. These abnormally high volumes seem to be the new normal, and it's not a good one. It hurts patients. The scary part is it's unclear how much longer this is going to continue.
1: That makes me think of the increasing surge across the U.S. from the Delta variant. Do you see anything different about the Delta variant and the surges that it's created?
0: Sure. Now that the Delta variant continues to spread across the U.S., we've seen hospital surges come back with a vengeance. And while we have started to see a downswing, fortunately, hospitals and areas that were very badly affected by the Delta variant, this is our fourth downslope. So, you know, I think it's really hard to predict what comes next. But to go into more detail about the current problem, the Delta variant is a different beast. It is far more transmissible than its predecessors. More transmission means more patients. More patients means more surges. Hospitals in areas with low vaccination rates are the worst affected. Every two or three weeks, Lauren, we are seeing a new state get compromised by surges in the news. Now, more than ever, it is abundantly clear we need to do something different, especially in how we handle these volumes. Basically, it comes to two options. We either suddenly increase their beds, which we call capacity expansion, or we send excess patients elsewhere. And I think we have to think about this choice carefully. If we increase the capacity all of a sudden, we've had to do this over the last couple months. But at the same time, I think we have to understand is this a sustainable model or do we just do this in the beginning when the hospital is stunned with many patients? And I think it's the latter. And the reason is because our study showed that there were many hospitals in our study that had unbelievably high volumes. So it's hard to imagine that they did not expand capacity. And in that scenario, their mortality risk increased quite a bit. So I think it goes back to our sort of default second option We need to do something about managing these excess patients by perhaps sending them to other hospitals. And patients have been moved to other hospitals. It's just been really difficult. And it's worth going into this uh, a little bit, Lauren, because I think there are hospitals that have been compromised and hospitals around them have been compromised as well, making it really difficult to find beds for patients We've seen this on the news that people have have had to call many, many hospitals to find a bed just because everybody is so busy. I I think it would be helpful to go into what some of the barriers are to transporting patients so that everybody has an understanding of what the situation is. And we can work together for solutions to to overcome this so that no single hospital is compromised.
1: Yeah, I mean, I hear your point about the challenges. It, It is really a labor intensive process, right? There's barriers with reimbursement, barriers with the level of care that patients are receiving as they get transferred. It's really challenging to transfer an unstable patient. And we have specialized teams, you know, that have to do that transfer. It it just feels like it could be an overwhelming problem to try and solve at at a high level, like the national level.
0: Mm -hmm. You know, at the same time, I think it's worth reflecting on what we already know and what we've learned from the pandemic to maybe encourage people to load balance. And by load balance, what I mean is try to make sure that no single hospital is too compromised with too many patients and preemptively move patients to other hospitals as soon as that is possible. This has to work on both sides. They have to be hospitals willing to accept patients as well. And the biggest problem that we're facing right now is that even though there might be a bed, there might not be a nurse or a respiratory therapist. So there's that issue. Secondly, we need more research into the safety of moving unstable patients with COVID-19 from one hospital to the other, even though I think we can say sufficiently from our real world experience over the last couple of months that we have safely moved many, many patients from one hospital to the other. And I think that experience counts right now, at least while there's no data. And there has been data prior to the pandemic that has shown the safety associated with transporting patients who are critically ill. I also want to explain the concept of Medical Operations Coordination Centers, or MOCs. These are essentially coordination centers that have operations experts that are helping doing the phone calls, understanding the complexity of the patients, understanding which hospitals have beds and which don't. These are you know, now set up at the regional level, at the state level. So we really need to increase awareness about these mocks, and we need to try to diminish the barriers that are there to implement mocks in places where there aren't any. I think we really need to do that so that we take away the stress associated with trying to find a bed for the clinical team that is busy trying to take care of a sick patient.
1: Yeah absolutely, I mean for every minute that that patient care team spends trying to find a bed for that patient it's other patients who don't get to have face time with their providers to get that skilled nursing care. So it really can have a dramatic impact. And I think your point about the mocks is really important. I mean, we continue to see communication challenges, data sharing challenges, coordination challenges, and they are facilitating improved mechanisms for transferring these patients and doing load balancing right now in real time. Absolutely. disaster planner in me can't help but think of all the other scenarios where this could be an incredibly useful tool. Do you think this is just something that is designed to help us think about COVID surge or do you see applications beyond just this pandemic?
0: I see implications beyond this pandemic for sure. I do say that with a caveat because the surge index per se was designed for a respiratory viral pandemic precisely due to COVID-19. And the elements that went into the surge index in terms of what resources and what personnel and severity go into understanding kind of the surge strain, it applies to COVID-19. And so what I would say is that, in principle, the surge index is a good metric for other similar, hopefully there's nothing similar to this, but other (laughs) disasters in the future. But I would say that it should be customized to the condition that we're dealing with.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. So if we need it for something else, we open the hood and and look in there to see what we need to change to make it more appropriate for that disaster, that pandemic or that emergency. Absolutely. So speaking of that, thinking about the future, where does prevention fit into all this?
0: As you've seen, there's no perfect and seamless solution to handle major surges in COVID-19 patient numbers in the hospital. Also, as I said earlier, there are no magic bullets to treat COVID-19, especially once organs begin to fail. It's a type of sepsis, just caused by a virus, in this case, instead of bacteria, which are the more common cause of sepsis. So the elephant in the room is prevention. I can't emphasize this enough. Why get to the point of no return? It's really too late. By the time that hospitals are surging to extreme levels, the cat's already out of the bag. We now have tried and tested public health measures like face coverings and vaccines that are incredibly effective at avoiding death and hospitalization from COVID-19 in most people. But because this Delta variant is so transmissible, we need many more to be vaccinated than they have been today to get ahead of this curve, to get ahead of this virus and avoid our hospitals from becoming dangerous places, not only for patients with COVID-19, but also for people with other issues.
1: That makes total sense to me and goes back to our earlier point of just staying out of the hospital is the best way to stay safe. When hospitals are surging, you have to keep people out and The best way to really do that is to get as many people in the community as vaccinated as possible. So you're definitely a big data guy. You have me convinced. I'm a qualitative researcher and this seems like a place where maybe we could combine forces to dig deeper and understand some of the nuances of why certain patient types take these additional resources, how different things affect patient flow and patient volume. You know some of the issues we were talking about before of customizing this for different types of disasters and emergencies. Do you see a role for mixed methods in this research area moving forward? What does that look like?
0: Lauren, absolutely. Sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) This study is using quantitative data from hundreds of U.S. hospitals. And what we are trying to do is get a 30,000-foot view of the problem. But certain nuances that are actually really important here to understand the real drivers behind the excess mortality risk at surging hospitals are impossible to glean from large data. What we really need is a deeper dive into data that are more granular at maybe a smaller set of hospitals where there could be manual chart review, where people could actually go into notes and do a deeper investigation of why certain decisions were taken, what errors occurred, etc., to really pinpoint, you know, what are the drivers for this excess mortality risk. Because the care of a patient in the hospital is really a continuum. And then there are many players involved trying to understand that more at the grassroots level and, and bringing in this sort of qualitative aspect is going to be invaluable to not only understand our findings a bit better from the study we did, but, you know, also address similar situations in the future.
1: Yeah, that makes total sense. I could imagine something like semi-structured interviews would be great for understanding staffing decisions and, and how those impact, you know, a nurse or a physician's feeling of competency in a new environment or where we put patient types, depending on the, the technical skills of the clinicians in those spaces. It seems like an area ripe for mixed methods exploration.
0: 100%. When are we doing this?
1: How about as soon as the pandemic is over? (laughs) So speaking of that, Dr. Kadri, thanks so much for joining us. And speaking of getting the pandemic over, is it safe to say that one surefire way to move towards that and reduce surge is for everyone to go out and get vaccinated?
0: 100%. You said it. I I can't stress this enough. I think hopefully through this podcast, most of you who are hearing this have uh, figured out that there's really no magical way to fix the problem of surges other than trying to just reduce severe COVID-19 from happening. It's these cases that are impacting hospitals. It's these cases that are actually leading to deaths. But the bright side here is it's also these cases that are now incredibly preventable. And we have a tool to do that. So I would absolutely say, you know, everybody who hasn't been vaccinated, please consider the vaccine and think about it not only for yourself, but also your family members, as well as society at large.
1: Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And for those of you listening who want more information on vaccinations, please check out the NEETEC website. We have tons of resources on there as well. Samir, thanks so much. As always, it's great talking with you. I look forward to your next study and I look forward to future potential collaborations.
0: Thank you so much, Lauren. Thank you for having me. It was really a pleasure.
1: For those of you listening at home, thank you for tuning in for this special episode on surge capacity. We hope you'll join us for future episodes on a wide range of topics from healthcare worker safety to personal protective equipment and even more about infectious diseases of all kinds. If you have any questions for us or ideas for future shows, please feel free to contact us at info at or you can find us on the web at neatek.org slash podcast. That's N-E-T-E-C slash podcast, where you can subscribe to future episodes and find more information on today's topic. We'll see you next time on Transmission Interrupted.
0: You've been listening to Transmission Interrupted, the podcast series from NEETEC, the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. Learn more at NEETEC.org.